so you're, um, you're living the Christian life uh, and you come to something of a T-junction. You can, you can turn right, you can disobey God, or you can turn left and you can obey him. Why do you, why do you turn left? What's your motivation for obeying God at that T-junction, at that decision that you make? Why do you do that? Why do you not disobey him? Many people stoically say, well, I'm not going to disobey, I am going to obey. And that's because people might find out. uh, And I don't want them to find out what I'm like, what I'm doing. Or I'm going to hate myself in the morning. Or it's going to ruin my self-esteem. Or it's going to crush me. Or other people might get hurt. Or I might get caught. I might be punished. It's against my principles. Do you know, we just don't do that kind of stuff around here. That's not how I'm going to live. It's going to make me look bad. And some of those motivations, some of those underlying thoughts might well be true. They might be good ways for us to control how we live to curb our behaviour. And yet I think Titus says in our passage for this morning that they are all inadequate reasons. They're all inadequate. They don't finally work in the long term. They don't change us. Titus says that only the grace of God will work. Only a heart that is saturated with grace. Only a life that is built on grace is going to grow forth new actions, a new way of living, and a life that does good, if you were here for last week. The story so far in Titus, if you remember, if you were around, is that Titus is finishing off what Paul has started, that the gospel has flourished on Crete. People have started following Jesus. People have been saved and yet this church needs, needs strengthening. It needs to be built up. Particularly because Crete seems a pretty nasty place. But also and especially because there are false teachers going around looking to undermine what's been started. And they're ripping apart the church. Titus is there. He's strengthening these little seedlings. He's looking to appoint elders. Put people in place who are going to lead the church and look after them. These elders who, who know and who show... That, do you remember 1 verse 1, that the knowledge of truth leads to godliness. The gospel changes you. It, it really works. It transforms lives. And if you're anything like me, your question is, how? That's what I want. How does the gospel transform me? And I think the answer is in 2, verse 11 to 14. So we're going to jump in there. If, if, Titus, if Titus chapter 2 is a tree... And verse 11 to 14 are the roots. And then verse 1 to 10, that is the fruit that these roots produce. Okay, so 11 to 14 are the roots. And 1 to 10 is the fruit. We're going to look first of all at 11 to 14. It's there in your Bibles at page 1199. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It, that is grace, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ who gave himself for us 
to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So verse 11, grace. See it there? Grace. Grace is the free gift of God that brings us salvation. It's God being kind to us. He's not giving us what our lives warrant. He's gracious. And look, grace is the way into the Christian life, verse 11. But it turns out grace is not just the way into the Christian life. It's much more than that. It it is the life jacket we need to put on and to wear and to be rescued. Rescued from God's just anger against our sin. That is right. And yet, it's not just the life jacket that we put on. It turns out it's how we continue to grow in the Christian life. It's all about grace. Not just at the beginning, but every single day. Every day is a life jacket day. Every day is a repentance day. And so Paul says grace teaches us. It teaches us as we live the Christian life. It says we stop, do you see it, and we start. We say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. We stop things and we start, we live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Now that teacher's word there means to, to train or to coach or to discipline someone over a period of time. So I take it what's going on is this. Every day as we apply the gospel to our lives, as we apply grace to every little nook and cranny of who we are, the stuff we're like in public and the stuff we're like in private, whenever we apply grace to the core of who we are, so our identity and our value and our our worth and our security and our self-image, that all slowly gets transformed. We don't feel such a need to be respected by people, to be impressive. We don't have to justify ourselves. We don't always have to have the last word in an argument because, because we know who we are. We've, we've grasped grace. We're not quite so captivated and obsessed by what others think the whole time. And so we f- we're free. We're free to live for him. We're liberated It's not about them and what they think anymore. It's, well, I know I'm secure in him. And I can trust him. And I'm secure because of that. So I can live for him. I'm empowered to live for him. Grace teaches us. It trains us. It coaches us. It disciplines us. So that every day we're changed. It changes us from the inside. So you reach that T-junction and you decide to turn left to obey God, not because you're scared of being found out, not because you're proud and, well, we don't do those things around here, but because you know who you are, you're in the relationship that you were made for. Grace teaches you, it trains you, it coaches you, it disciplines you, day by day by day by day, as you apply the gospel to every little nook and cranny of life. I don't know about you, but I find that liberating. That's the kind of thing that makes my heart sing. Because I easily think grace is all about what we do at the start. We think, well, grace is the way into the Christian life. Thanks for the life jacket. I'm going to take it off and I'm going to learn to swim now, Lord. 
I'm going to get on by swimming by myself. And that doesn't seem to be right. It seems to be the default option of our hearts. We're trying to grab these life jackets off and learn to swim. And says, no, 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 keep them on. Every day is a life jacket day. Every day is a grace day. Someone said this. I think it's right. They said grace is not just the ABC of the Christian life. That is, it's not just the beginning. It's the A to Z of the Christian life. Every day is about grace. Every day is a life jacket day. It's the way in and it's the way that we grow up the way that we mature. And I think that truth underpins the rest of the chapter, which is why we've laboured it. There are other motivations he gives for godly living, for for doing good, different perspectives to challenge us with. There's there in verse 13. We live these kind of lives knowing that he's going to come back. This, This isn't it. It might feel like it, but this isn't it. Jesus one day will return, and when we doubt that, then look to the resurrection. All his promises there are yes. He said he'd be raised again, and he was. He says he'll come back, and he will. When we doubt his return, look to the resurrection. And so Paul's saying our future reality should shape what we do now, the present priorities that we have. It's that future seeping back into to this life. It shapes how we stop things like ungodliness, worldly passions. It shapes how we start things like self-controlled, upright, godly lies now. Now. We know he's going to come back. We also know that he's redeemed us. He gave himself for us. That's there in verse 14. He said he gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that he was very own, eager to do what is good. Just notice again, there's a negative and a positive aspect to that. So redemption is the language of being bought and freed. We're to live as who we are. We're redeemed from wickedness now. We've stopped doing things. And yet it's not just stopping, it's starting again. We're purified of people to do good. And how did he do that? He gave himself the most precious thing in all the universe was given so that we might be redeemed. So he's going to purify a people for himself who show the world what he is like. He's redeemed us. We said it last week, I'm going to say it again. Notice it's this way round. It is not, not, you live like this, you get the grades and God will be happy with you. That's not the way it works. It is... The other way around, it's through the cross, because of grace, because of who you are, then live like this. You have been redeemed. Now live like this. A lot of people get confused by that, and that's dangerous because they're, they're constantly working and thinking, have I done enough? Have I done enough? Have I tipped the scales? Am I okay? And there's no assurance. And no, no, he's redeemed us. Because of who you are, live a godly life. Again, if you're like me, the question then floats up, well, what does that mean for me each day? What does that godly life look like? What does it mean for me on a Monday or a Wednesday or a Thursday or wherever it might be? And I think then you get verses 1 to 10 that he kind of spells it out to us. So remember this grace-saturated life underpins all of 1 to 10. Titus says, here's how as a church you function. Each of you, here's how you are to live and to relate to others. 
So if 11 to 14 then, they're the roots, 1 to 10 is the fruit. And he speaks to five different groups within the church family. We're going to look at those more carefully in a moment. Just before we do those, little thoughts or observations before we jump in. First one is to say this is the antidote to last time. If you remember, on Crete there were these false teachers going around and they were destroying households. Remember what they were saying was having a real damage and impact on people. This stuff was getting in and it was like a like a flaky wall. There were holes and there were problems and Titus is getting in there and looking to put the concrete over and to repair the wall. The church is like a first century household, a unit with, with people, with parents, with children, with slaves. And so he speaks to, to each group, telling them how to live. He's, he's putting the, the household back together. He's rebuilding where these false teachers have had... Um, have made inroads. The second thing that just jumps out is that the church is quite a, a rare thing for our culture. And that is because the generations must mix. I find that fascinating and I find it great. It's beautiful. It's attractive. So he's to teach the younger men and the older men and the older women, but the older women are to teach the younger women. We like to just hang around in our groups. And yet, Paul says to Titus, no, 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 get the generations mixing. Particularly older women, you teach younger women. Invest in them. Train them. I think that's very rare for our culture, where you get these different generations mixing and making a difference to each other's lives. That's fascinating and it's great. The other thing to say is just why it matters so much. Why do these change lives matters? And why does it matter how you spend your money? Why does it matter how you live and relate to others? Why does what you say matter? And the answer is, we'll see it a few times, but it's verse 5. So that no one will malign the word of God. Verse 8. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Or again, end of verse 10. So that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. Godliness is about mission. It's about mission. And so it matters because people are watching you. Through your week, they are watching you and seeing whether it works. This grace thing you keep talking about, does it work? Can I see it in his life? Can I see it in her life? It presupposes you aren't doing the hermit thing and... People know that you're a Christian and they know what you believe. But they're looking at you. And does it work? Does it matter? So, these five different groups. I think as we look at each one, they, they all speak to all of us. And then our individual one will particularly speak to us, if that makes sense. So, all verses 1 to 10 will speak to all of us. There are principles and things there we must take away. But then we will each have our ears pricking up at a particular time, whether we are older men or younger men, or older women or younger women, because of who we are. So firstly, older men, verse 2. We're all listening in, but particularly older men, ears pricked. You are to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Why? 
Why? Well, because God's grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. The overall portrait is one of someone who is an example, someone who doesn't overindulge in life. They're temperate, that is literally sober and sober-minded. Each bit of their life demands respect from others. They're self-controlled, that's a thinking thing and a living thing. They're not like the rest of Crete. Remember from last week, the liars, the evil brutes, the lazy gluttons. They are careful and measured. They know where to draw the line. They know what to do and what not to do. They are sound in faith and love and endurance. That is what they they believe. Their faith is sound, again, in contrast to these false teachers from last week. How they treat others is sound. They love. They're still active in caring for people. They're still others-centred Christians. They're sound in love. And they're sound in the way they endure as well. Even though things might be slowing down a bit. They persevere. Older men, you're to press on. You're to endure, you're to keep going. It'd be easier not to, but keep going. If you're an older man, take what Paul says this week. Think about it. Chew on it. Pray about it. Think about what he says for the, for the kind of life you're to lead. A life with roots in grace produces fruit like this. Men who look like this. Second group, verse 3. First word, I think in many ways the key word, to them, to you, is to be reverent. Reverent in the way they live. That The word, I'm told, was originally used of priests and priestesses, those performing religious duties, and it came to mean godly, holy. Someone who, inside and outside, in public and in private, is living the kind of life that shows what God is like. Set apart for him. Different. Useful. And so, verse 3, they're not to be slanderers, so they are reverent, they are holy in the way that they speak. When the rest of the world world is is verbally assaulting and, and gossiping, when the office is full of it, or the staff room, or the school gates, wherever it might be, you hold your tongue. Not addicted to much wine. That is that is reverent, that is holy in how you consume alcohol. Different from others, not addicted. Not enslaved to wine or I think any other kind of alcohol. It doesn't say you can't drink it. It says be careful in how you do. Don't let it master you. And and as you live that kind of a way, as you live these reverent lies, older women, then you're to teach what is good. You see that? Now that could be the content of what you are to teach. We'll look at that in a minute the things that you say to others. Or it could be, and I'm more persuaded by this, 
but it's through how you live you teach. So it's not so much the verbal content of what you teach, but actually it's the kind of life that you model. As you live as a Christian, your life tells a story to the world watching. You are to teach others what is good. Again, if you're an older woman, I'd love you to to take this week some of those thoughts and ideas and to pray about them and chat about them and to think what it looks like in your life. How a life built on grace grows this kind of fruit. Although we aren't done with you yet, um, your job is not finished because you are to teach the younger women. That's the third group, verses four to five. I think it's worth knowing a bit of the background here as to why he says what he says and what sort of the issue is that Paul is dealing with as he writes. And there's good evidence there seems to be a kind of progressive cultural movement going on at the time that sought to, to liberate women. There may well be some good in that. But and yet the pendulum had swung far too far. Along with it came a kind of utterly renouncing their roles within the household and pre- premarital or extramarital sex. That kind of stuff was being pressured. And it doesn't take a moment, I think, to see the clear parallels to, to our culture, the air that we breathe, the culture of sexual liberation. If you, if you can get away with it, just go for it. A culture that often looks down on stay-at-home mums. And so Paul seems to turn now to the younger married women, those especially who it seems were being sucked into this prevailing culture. And the older women are to train them. They're to train them to love their husbands and their children. There are always cultural pressures to love other things, to have a focus elsewhere. And however hard, however alluring those pressures are, he says, love your husband and love your children. Again, younger women, you are to be self-controlled. You're to be pure. In the context, it seems to particularly be regards to sexuality, Uh, Pure in what you say, in what your uh, dress sense says, your language, your body language, your conduct. It's to be quite different from those around you. Self-controlled, pure. And again then, with these cultural pressures, it seems like you can see why Paul is having to tell them to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands even. It's because they were blindly going with the flow and families and households were being ripped apart. One writer says this, he says, The instruction for younger wives was designed to stabilise the household by calling them back from promiscuity to godliness and respectability. Again, as it's our default mode to forget it, this is because it's a life built on grace. This is being changed from the inside. This is knowing the gospel in every nook and cranny of life. This isn't, I I must try harder and work more and try and change. No, no, it's, I don't have to impress others. I know who I am in Christ. I can be who I was made to be. God loves me. That's enough. I'm going to build on grace. Grace teaches us to stop and to start. I think these verses must as well act as a kind of introductory service to older women and to younger women in the church. I'm 
still slightly new in town, I can get away with this. I don't know how much the generations mix at Magdalen Road. I'm going to jump in with two feet and I'm going to say, older women, take this seriously. Think who you can grab a coffee with this week or this month. Help them as they live in the culture that we do. Help them to live godly lives in this culture. To be pure. To be self-controlled. Their lives are your business, older women. Many of them are crying out for, for an older mentor. I think every church I've been to, at least in the last decade, I have known younger women who would love an older mentor to look after them, to meet up with them, to pray with them, to, to model the Christian life to them. Younger women, look for older sisters who can encourage you and build you up. Hunt them down. Prioritise it. Be proactive. Someone who's been through it before. Someone who's, who's built on grace. Be brave. Give them a call this week. See if they'll meet up with you. I think cross-generational relationships are vital as we try and build healthy churches. The generations must mix. And I think by Paul's comments to Titus, they should be pretty high up on our to-do list as well. Some of you will know the church that I've come from. Um, we planted about four years ago. Uh, we planted, and we were very young. I think I was 29 when we began. The average age of the church was probably 24 or 25. And we had lots of energy and lots of naivety and not enough wisdom. What we needed was an older generation. We needed people over us, older than us, people who had, who had been Christians for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. And the Lord's amazing kindness, he brought another congregation to us and we, we joined with them and suddenly we had mums and dads in the faith people to meet up with people who had walked the Christian life who were finishing the marathon many of whom have and are still investing in the lives of younger Christians we need a culture of cross-generational uh, relationships younger men Younger men, verses 6 to 8. I think we looked at them in the shed if you were around, uh, blokes, a couple of weeks ago. Paul says this, Younger men, be self-controlled. And that's basically it. We're not going to move on. We're going to think about that for a moment, though. Be self-controlled. Why? Because God's grace teaches us to be self-controlled got to keep coming back to the root again. We saw it too with elders last week. It's the area, it's what we think about. It's what we spend our time doing, how we fill up our diary, how we spend our money. You will know the main arena that this applies to you in if you're a younger guy. You will know the self-control issues that you have. Might be self-control in the books that you read or the, the magazines, it might be the people that you speak to, it might be the, the way that you speak, perhaps the places you go, the things you spend time thinking about. In our visual culture, it might be what you watch, it might be stuff on the internet. In a group of this size, there will likely be issues with pornography. 
it might just be your use of the eBay website and just looking at things and things that you hope for, things that you think will bring you life and joy and happiness. They never do. Because of grace, young men, be self-controlled. Before you click, before you open, before you linger, before you speak, before you read, before you watch, be self-controlled. Because of grace, because of who you are in Christ, your new identity, be self-controlled. Now, to be fair, younger men, there is a bit more for us, actually, because we hear how he encourages Titus to minister among us. Do you see that? Verse 7 and 8. We're to concentrate on how we speak, particularly here if you're here as a teacher or a potential teacher. He's to speak well with integrity, with seriousness, with soundness of speech. Again, the contrast to last week's false teachers. I think it's particularly pertinent for young Bible teachers. For those of you who are in the Spurgeons group or you aspire to, to being Bible teachers. We need to know when to draw the line when something becomes inappropriate. Because what we say normally, what we say in normal situations, might detract from what you say on a Sunday at the front. People might not listen to us or respect us. They might close their ears because they see the kind of stuff that we say on a Wednesday. So Titus is to be careful how he speaks. Grace is to teach us self-control. Then the final group, verses 9 to 10, these slaves. The slaves, too, are to show lives, to show the world that Christ has transformed them. Now, the basic role of a slave in their culture doesn't really track so much with, the, with us or much of our culture in Oxford or East Oxford. I think the, the employee-employer relationship, there are some good parallels there. There are some good principles we can take away. And so Paul says we need to obey our masters, our bosses. We need to work hard to try to please them, to not answer back, to not steal, to be trustworthy when we're at work. Simon the slave is a Christian. Sam the slave is not a Christian. Simon is to be very different from Sam in the workplace. Slaves often have the reputation for being lazy, good-for-nothings. Not the Christian slave. The Christian slave is rooted in grace. And so the fruit is seen in his life. And we've said it already, we said why. It's verse 10, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. The gospel leads to changed lives. It leads to fruit. Grace makes us different. That makes us... Mission-minded. People are watching us. People are thinking, does it work? This gospel thing, this grace thing that they keep going on about, does it actually work? Can I see it when I look at their lives? And it's to be obvious. They see how we've changed. They see that our priorities and our identity and our values, our security, our anxieties, our internet surfing, the stuff that we watch, the way that we speak, how we spend our money, our drinking of alcohol, they see these things are transformed 
by grace. They see it works. They see the gospel at work, and look, it's to be attractive. Verse 10. Attractive. Because we say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and yes to self-controlled, upright and godly lives because of grace. And they're the kind of churches that Paul wants Titus to plant on Crete. They're the kind of churches who are going to have an impact. The message will ring out from them, both through what they say and through how they live. That's the kind of church that will have an impact in East Oxford. The message will ring out from us, not just through what we say, but through how we live. Lives built on grace. Grace. 